Welcome back. Hopefully you had a good afternoon. Hopefully you got some rest. Uh, I know we were able to get a short nap in. I love my Sunday naps, but because uh, I'm usually exhausted by the time Sunday morning is over with. But uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be digging into the Word. It's a good tired. So tonight we're going to continue in our study through the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 6, finish out, uh, uh, we're going to get about halfway through John chapter 6. Last week we saw Christ feed the 5,000 and we looked at uh, the willingness of one young lad to share his lunch and the, the miracle that God can do in that. And uh, with we looked at the fact that um, this morning that God's strength is in our weakness, uh, that he uses people that are uh, unlearned, untrained, uh, and oftentimes unprepared for what he's called them to do. And through that, he shines and uh, is given great honor and glory. So today, we're going to pick up with uh, another miracle from Christ, and we're going to see uh, a few things that are very important for us today to understand as we see this next miracle. Um, so we're going to start in John chapter 6, and we're going to pick up in verse number 14 at the end of our passage from last week, and continue on down through verse number 27. John chapter 6, and verse number 14, the Bible says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet which should come into the world. When Jesus therefore received or perceived that they would come and take him by force and make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. <clears throat> the day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when comest thou thither? Jesus answered and answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat the loaves, eat of the loaves, and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth but for what that meat which endureth under everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we love you again so much. We thank you for this glorious day, Lord. We thank you for the great day down at the park, for your wonderful words this morning. And God, I just pray that you would guide and direct tonight. I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we would hear this truth, Lord, that we would understand exactly what you have to show us tonight and that it would change and affect our lives and shape us into the men and women you'd have us to be so lord please watch over us speak to us tonight uh, help us to 
see and hear and understand your word and not just be hearers but doers also god work in us tonight we love you and we thank you it's in jesus name we pray amen so again jesus had just gotten done feeding the five thousand, and, and verse number 14 says then those men when they had seen the miracle that jesus did said this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world that phrase that prophet is speaking of psalm 132 so if you'll turn back with me to psalm 132 we're going to see a few things out of this but understand that this psalm is a psalm that every Jew would have habitually recited. They would have said it in their homes during mealtimes. They would have read it in the synagogue. In the synagogue, this was a psalm that should have been near and dear to their heart. They would sing it uh, over and over again, and yet they're only seeing a small piece of it. So Psalm 132 and verse number 1, this is a song of degrees. Psalm number 132 and verse number 1 says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed the, unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the, into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I found out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah, we found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacle, <clears throat> sorry, into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it of the fruit of thy body, will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon the, thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever, here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. As the children of Israel would read this and recite it and sing it, they would immediately begin to think of the Messiah, the coming king, the one that is going to sit on the throne of David and is going to rule and reign and is going to make all of their troubles disappear. But the part that, that triggered this for these men that saw that wanted Christ to become king is verse number 15. It says, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Now again, Christ had just fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He had abundantly uh, blessed and provided with so little. And of course it was bread. But Christ, knowing their thoughts and knowing that they were not ready, knowing that they just had a head knowledge of who He was and not a heart knowledge, uh, decided that it was time for Him to leave. Because, as verse number 15 says, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take Him by force to make Him a king, He departed again into a mountain Himself alone. It was not time for Christ to be king. 
But back to Psalm 132, there's some other things that I'd like to notice about this psalm. This is a, a messianic psalm, and it's full of very interesting things. The first part of Psalm 132 shows us just how unready uh, these men were to truly accept Christ as king. Uh, how it shows us their head knowledge. In verse number 7, it says, We will go into his tabernacles, we will worship at his footstool. Uh, they, they were not ready to truly worship the king. Uh, they were not truly ready to follow him and, and obey him. True biblical worship is obedience. It is, is following someone and, and blessing them with obedience. And they were not ready to do this. I'm not sure why, but I did notice in this that the word tabernacles is plural. Uh, it's not just the tabernacle. It is plural. I'm not sure if that is because uh, in the time of the Messiah, in the millennial reign, when Christ does return as king and rules and reigns, uh, His Holy Spirit is dwelling in each and every believer that is with Him. I'm not sure if that is why, but it is plural. It's just something odd here, but... But the thing I see is they're going to worship at his footstool. Now, what is the footstool? Literally and physically, the footstool is the base of the throne. Now, uh, it's for Solomon's throne, this footstool was made of gold. In 2 Chronicles uh, 9, we see Solomon describing, or Solomon's uh, throne described here. 2 Chronicles 9. And verse number 13. Now this is uh, just after uh, the queen of Sheba has arrived and, and we've seen the, the greatness of Solomon. Um, but verse number 13 has always struck me as interesting because we see a number here and we see it only in one other place in the Bible. But verse number 13 says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred and three score and six talents of gold. That number six hundred sixty and six. In the book of Revelation, that is the number of the devil. That is uh, his specific number. Um, so it's very interesting here that it would be associated with Solomon. We know Solomon at the end of his uh, life had given himself over to uh, idols and, and serving idols because his many wives and concubines had turned his heart away from God. But that's a whole other uh, note here. But Continue on in verse number 14. It says, Beside that which uh, Chapman and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of beaten gold went it to one target, and 300 shields made he of beaten gold. 300 shekels of gold went to one shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Verse number 17, Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne and stays on each side of the sitting place and two lions standing by the stays. And twelve lions stood, uh, stood there on the one side and on the other. Upon the six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom. So Solomon's footstool was... His literal footstool on his throne was made of gold. 
Christ's footstool, however, is a little different. If we go to Psalm 110, still stuck in Psalm 119, Psalm 110, and verse number 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now this is uh, God speaking to Jesus the Son, the Father, God the Father speaking to God the Son, that he is going to make his enemies his footstool. If we go to Isaiah 66, 1. Verse number one. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? Now, taking these two verses and putting them together, comparing them with uh, the verses in Psalm 132, we understand that that biblically, or the true, sorry, in either case, the footstool is where we should be worshiping. Uh, and what is worship? True biblical worship is the act of acknowledging who God is. He is the creator, the savior, the king, and the Lord. So in order to acknowledge who God is, we have to treat him as if he is all of those things. Uh, the vast majority of worship then is simple obedience and thankfulness for who he is and what he does. So when we look at the footstool that we should worship at. We should lay our thanksgivings at his feet as he sits on the throne of our lives, and we should obey his command while we are here on the earth and in front of his enemies. All of the unsaved are, and are remember that any unsaved person is at enmity, enmity with God. They are God's enemy. Uh, these men were not ready to worship the king in this way. They were not ready to give themselves uh, over. They, they were seeking a king to destroy their enemies, not uh, a king that would allow them to witness in front of their enemies. Verse number 9 goes on to say that uh, his priests are clothed in righteousness. The priests of Israel were not righteous. They were far from it at this point. We as saved believers are a royal priesthood. First uh, Peter 2.9 gives us that information. We understand that uh, we don't have any righteousness in ourselves. Um, these men, without a whole lot of explanation, uh, the men that were in the priesthood during the time of Christ were evil and wicked. The men that were in religious leadership were evil and wicked. First Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should, ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the only way for that to happen is for us to get saved, for us to understand the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Again, Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 
Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And if you turn over to Isaiah 61.10, the Bible says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels, Christ is who clothes us with His righteousness. Uh, again, that, that word salvation has come up. That was in um, verse number... Psalm 132 and verse number... 16, I will clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout out for joy. Israel only saw Christ providing the bread. Uh, they were happy with this part, but uh, verse 16 was their, some, their stumbling block. That I will clothe her priests with salvation. Salvation hadn't been offered yet. Christ was still walking this earth. This is the thing that all of Israel missed when they were looking at the Messiah. They were looking at a conquering king not a savior. And this is why uh, Israel was blinded. As often as these Jews had used the psalm in their ritual, they forgot about verse number 16. It said, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. The provision of salvation had fir first had to be accomplished uh, before the kingdom could come. But how often do we as people grab a hold of one promise or another and hold on for dear life, not understanding the whole context that's involved? Here's a perfect example of that. Matthew 21 and verse number 22. Matthew 21 and verse number 22. The Bible says, In all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. This verse taken by itself, says that all things that we shall ask, we shall receive. But when you take it and compare it with other scripture or other similar verses, we get a, a whole different picture of what the meaning is. Go to James 4. James chapter 4. Hebrews and James. James chapter 4 and verse number 3 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. 1 John 3, a few pages back. 1 John 3 and verse number 22 says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. When comparing Matthew 21-22 with these other verses, we understand that it's not that we ask for anything we want and we receive it as Christians. It's we ask for things that are in Christ's name, that, that are in Christ's desire. Things that our mind is like Christ's mind as we grow and we learn and we walk with Him. And because our mind is like Christ's mind, we begin to think and act like Him. And we ask things that He would desire. Uh, we ask for things that would further His ministry, further His kingdom. And He's willing to grant those things. 
These men were looking for the king to deliver them from Rome, not the king that would rule their hearts and lives. And we see that all these uh, who seek here to make him king reject him and even uh, are going to reject him on the cross and then even during the millennial reign will rebel against him. Uh, when Christ returns and, and rules and reigns for a thousand years, at the end of that thousand year stretch, Satan will be loosed and the nations will be deceived. Christ, the king of peace, will have ruled for a thousand years giving perfect peace, no strife, no war. And yet, they're going to rebel against him simply because they don't want to have a, a ruler. So because of this, Christ departed. Christ removed himself from the situation. He chose to depart and allow the euphoria to weaken. He moves again into the mountain, but this time he is alone. If we go back to the parallel passage in Matthew, we see uh, a little bit different version. This is the same it's the same story, it's the same time frame, but Matthew has some different details that he focuses on that are a little more uh, important to him than they were to John. Matthew 14 and verse number 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Now, Christ departs to have some time to himself. And this happens many times throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, and it, it tells us that even God's Son needed to have time alone to collect his thoughts. But most importantly, he needed that time alone to go speak to his Father. He was going up into the mountain to pray. He was going to seek God's face, to seek his Father's face. But this departure is also a foreshadowing of what is to come and, and what now is. Christ currently is not walking the earth. His Holy Spirit is in all of us who are saved, and we will one day return to He will one day return to reign, but he is gone. He is in heaven. He's not walking this earth right now. What a blessed knowledge that we are never truly alone and Christ is never far away. But as Christ leaves, his disciples uh, go on to the sea and they begin to have some issues. In the verse number 16, When even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. Again, uh, we, look, we saw this when we looked at the book of Jonah and, and we know that Jonah went down to Joppa and he went uh, down into the bottom of the ship. And we know that the word down and the direction of down in the Bible is often the direction away from Christ. Christ went up into the mountain in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 14. So even though in this case the disciples are being sent, we, we get this information back in Matthew 14 that Christ is sending them to the other side. They are going down and going away from where the Lord is. They are going in the opposite direction. They are moving in a direction opposite of where Christ is headed. And I believe that they're headed in this direction at Christ's request. We, again, we see that in Matthew 14. If we go back there. Matthew 14 and verse number 20. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside women and children. This is proving that the two passages are parallel. 
And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to go into a ship and to go before him into the other side while he sent the multitudes away. <clears throat> that word constrained, he desired, he, he, he ordered them, he commanded them to go into the ship, to go to the other side. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. That word midst is the middle. The passage in John tells us that they had rowed about five and twenty, between five, 25 and 30 furlongs, which is about two and a half, three miles. Uh, the distance from where they were at to Capernaum across the sea is said to be five miles. So they were directly in the middle of, of the, the sea at this point. But they were away from Christ, and they were in the dark. And it's a great reminder for us. When we're, for, when we're away from the Lord, the darkness comes. Uh, John 3, and verse number 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. If we go over to John 8, we haven't gotten to that part of the book of John yet, but... I'm sure you guys will know it anyway. John 8 and verse number 12. says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But we also need to understand that they are away from the Lord there. They've gone down. They've gotten under the ship. They're in the dark. They're away from Christ. Christ is never far from them. And they are going uh, exactly where God wants them to go. This storm was on purpose. Verse 18 tells us that the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. The passage in Matthew tells us that, uh, that Christ had sent them into the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that the creator of the world, uh, the one who can control the wind and waves, knew exactly the storm that was brewing. Christ knew what was about to happen. And he also knew that while that his disciples, while growing stronger day, day after day in their faith, were still very weak. And the passage in Matthew shows us that Christ uses this chance to strengthen all of their faith, but he distinctly focuses on curbing Peter's impetuous attitudes. We understand that most of the men uh, made their living before Christ fishing on these waters. Peter, Andrew, James, John... And a few others were all fishermen. They lived on the sea. They knew the storms. They were not afraid of the storms. They knew exactly where they were at. And they had rowed about halfway across the sea, diligently working to accomplish what the Lord had, had told them to do. Normally, they would have just put up the sails and came across. But because the wind was contrary, they were rowing. They were working. God's work is hard work. God's work is tiring work. Some of the, the most tiring times for me are Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening after I've preached. I'm, I was more tired this afternoon than I was all last week on that roof. It's just, it's a different, it's a different labor. But these men were on their way doing exactly what Christ had asked them to do and they were exactly where Christ wanted them to be working and serving, diligently trying to accomplish what their Lord had bid them to do. In the middle of the storm, 
in the dark, and then they see something on the sea that they'd never seen before. Jesus now returns to his disciples to encourage them, and he's walking on the water. Christ, uh, the, the, the disciples had already seen. They didn't even come close to stopping at that stop sign. The disciples had already seen Christ's control of the weather, his ability to manifest great from little, his ability to heal the human form, and yet they were not ready to witness his control of the laws of nature themselves. Christ joins them by walking on the water in the middle of the storm, and his disciples are scared. They can't believe their eyes, and they fear that this is an evil spirit approaching them. It again reminds us how our minds run wild when we're anxious, when we're tired, when we're away from the Lord, and when we're in the dark. <laughs> we were talking this afternoon about, or at lunchtime, we were talking about sleeping and uh, all the different things that we have to have when we're trying to sleep. And it brought to mind when I was growing up. I lived in the, the house out here on Dad's property, and uh, my room was upstairs, and the one window in the room faced toward the south, and for some reason we never put curtains or blinds or anything on it. So uh, anytime a car would drive by in the middle of the night, I would get headlights in my window, and it would illuminate the room and create shadows and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was never really scared of the dark, but I always slept, and this is probably why I still, even when it's 100 degrees outside and sleeping with a comforter on, I always slept with my head covered. I had to, and I'd poke just my mouth out. But... For me, I always had these as I was laying there awake and trying to get to sleep. I always had these imaginations that there was something in the room. And again, I wasn't scared, but I, I had this imagination that there was something in the room and it could only see me if part of me was not covered up. So I would have everything covered up. I had it all tucked in and bundled up except for uh, being able to breathe. I'd have the pillow over my head and um, just really stupid, dumb stuff. But... But we all know a kid that, that was afraid there was a monster under the bed and, and something else that was going on. And we're all, it's no wonder that these disciples are, are scared at this point as they see something they've never seen before. Something that to them who've grown up on the sea, who've lived their entire lives on the sea, have never stood and seen something like this on the water. But Christ wastes no time in reassuring them. When they cry out in, in fear because they're, they don't know what's going on, Christ says, it is I. Be not afraid. He gives them that blessed assurance. Christ is right there in the middle of the storm. He had not left them nor forsaken them. In fact, his disciples, the disciples had left Christ. We looked at that this morning when we talked about, uh, in the book of Ruth, when we talked about Naomi and Elimelech. God had not left them. God had not left his people Yes, God was chastising Israel at this point with the, with the judges and, and the famine, but God didn't leave them. They left God. God was right there. Isn't it the case in our lives? God has promised us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised that He will always be right there, even especially in those of us that are saved, Christ lives in us. The only reason we don't feel His presence is that we've walked away or we've grieved the Holy Spirit. 
We've done something that has made our windows dirty, that, that is, has broken the relationship that we have. And it's not that God doesn't want that relationship to exist anymore. It's that we feel too ashamed to take advantage of the relationship. The relationship is still there. We just don't take advantage of it. But Christ returns walking on the water. Now, in John, it says that the disciples uh, greeted him and brought him into the boat. In Matthew, it tells a little bit different part of the story. Matthew chapter 14, in verse number 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto, come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Poor Peter. Matthew's account of this event shows us that Peter was not satisfied with the answer that he'd received from the Lord. He was not satisfied with the Lord saying, It is I, be not afraid. Peter had to find out for himself. Never mind the undeniable voice or the fact that it was louder than the storm, Peter still needed more proof. <clears throat> so he asked to be allowed to walk on the water with Christ. This next scene brings to mind the parable of the sower, the seed and the sowers. If you remember in that parable, uh, the sower went out and sowed the seed and some fell on on the wayside and some fell on stony ground and some fell on thorny ground and some fell on good ground. It bears a striking resemblance here to the seeds that fell on the stony ground and on the thorny ground. Both of these seeds heard the word and rejoice but are burnt up quickly or choked out when the trials of life and testings of life come. Peter heard Christ's words and he immediately steps out on the boat and begins to walk on the water he actually walked on the water. Now, as impetuous as Peter is, and, and as often as, we, as he's rebuked for his, his impetuousness, all the other disciples just sat in the boat. They didn't try to partake in any of this. But Peter actually walked on the water. But then the wind and the waves began to take his attention away. He began to look at what was going around going on around him and he began to sink again that direction when you sink you go down in the darkness he took his eyes off Christ and he fell down but when he cries out Christ immediately saves him just as Christ could not have failed to save Peter at that moment he cannot and will not fail to save every sinner that cries out for forgiveness and places their faith in him on the cross of Calvary this little incident here is a great picture of what's to come. Peter, uh, as a man, is placing his faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone to save him, to save him from drowning. He has no power in himself to save himself. Matthew tells us now that as soon as Christ enters the ship, the storm stops. John tells us that as soon as he enters the ship, it was immediately at land. Now, most people gloss over that little fact uh, in the book of John. I don't know if they just, because it's 
uh, tucked in there. They just don't read it. They don't think about it. But in verse number 20, sorry, verse number 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now remember, when they found Christ walking on the water, they were in the midst of the sea. They were in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a storm. But as soon as Christ enters the boat, in the boat, they're immediately at the land. This is that. It's just another miracle. Remember, we'll come back to that in just a second. But those that had been sent away have now found their way back to Christ. They they knew that he did not leave with the disciples, and yet. Here he is with them. Christ reminds them that the only reason they seek him is because he provided for their fleshly needs. He then instructs them to labor for the meat that endureth unto everlasting life. That's verse number 24. Or sorry, verse number 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth, for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. This is the spiritual meat. He's telling us through this passage not to seek for the physical food, but for spiritual food. One day after the millennial reign, we whose names are found written in the book of life will enter a new heaven and a new earth where we will forever be with Christ. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more hunger or doubt. This is that shoreline that we seek. This is the shoreline that the Bible tells us uh, our spirit already resides on. This is the picture here as in John chapter 6, verse 21, that immediately when Christ entered into the ship, they were at the land. The Bible tells us that our spirit, while we physically reside here on earth, those of us that are saved, our spirit resides with God in heaven. Our spiritual meat will be revealed and we will never hunger again. God has a great plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. But the thing that he wants to remind us of today through this very simple passage is the reminder that he just gave the Jews. Stop worrying about your flesh. Stop worrying about the pain, the, the, the sorrow, the... Uh, the um, <clears throat> the the people that are ruling over you, uh, the, the oppression that has been given you, and start worrying about your soul. They missed in the beginning, you know, uh, when, they, when they recite Psalm 32 in their homes, they miss the part that God is going to clothe them in salvation. That before He ever comes to rule and reign, they have to have salvation. They missed that spiritual message. We need to seek the meat of the word, not the world. We need to seek that prophet, that prophet and king to worship at his footstool. We start here on earth in front of his enemies and end for eternity at his feet in heaven, praising, saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. This is the message that Christ is trying to get through to these Jews, and they don't get it. They're not going to understand it. Many of them still don't understand it. That's why uh, he has to come back during his millennial reign. That's why uh, 
we are in a church age. He's not done with the Jews. He is still going to deal with them through the tribulation and during the millennial reign. But even then, many of them will not understand. They're missing the Messiah. They're too worried about their flesh and their earthly needs to worry about the meat that never perish perishes. Let's not be like that today. Yeah, we, we worry about things, about paying the bills, about making sure the refrigerator's full. I mean, we just spent... Uh, before service talking about the time that we're going to spend at the park next week and and making sure that we have everything ready and that we're going to have what we need those are worries those are cares but the thing that we should be worried about the most is the message that we're going to bring to those kids putting them in an environment where they're going to hear the truth and have the opportunity to understand it that's the important part if we don't feed them, if we don't get to play games, it doesn't matter. What matters is that they hear and know that God loves them and that God died for them. And that they have a chance to spend eternity with Him in, in heaven. So this week as we travel on, let's as we continue through our week and go about our lives, let's worry about the spiritual food. Let's worry about true biblical worship and worshiping at the footstool of Jesus.